Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Feeling Scene Podcast, the podcast that talks about the movies that make us feel seen. It is I, your host, Jordan Cruciola, and my co-host for today is a, a writer, a producer, a director, an author of a book called Santa Doesn't Need Your Help uh, that I'm going to ask him about shortly, uh, and comedian, and really kind of seems like all-around polymath. Kevin Marr, what do the people need to know about you before we get started? I don't want to shortchange your credits, but I feel like they're expansive. So what do you want to localize in on to set I mean, people on the right path for you? We're talking about we're talking about Christmas movies and Christmas media and a movie that I love, that I feel and I feel seen with that mm-hmm. is just barely a Christmas movie. But I, I was jumping <laughs> at the opportunity. Jumping at the opportunity, and I've been listening to the podcast where people are talking about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Taxi Driver and, like, big, important, known pieces of American cinema. And I think this Mm. might be one of the least regarded films being talked about on the show. So I'm delighted that that I can bring that. That is possibly true. I can bring that to the table today. Well, then, tell us and the folks at home what it is you brought for us to discuss today. Because it's a real real deep cut. We're going to be talking about... 1995's Stuart Saves His Family, directed by Harold Ramis, which I think a lot of people don't know is a Harold Ramis movie. I did when I had absolutely seen this movie, but when that came up at the beginning, I was like, oh my God, this is a Harold Ramis movie. Which I guess is why it's set in Chicago, right? Because he, he eventually became mm. like a Chicago-based filmmaker. It came out between the Saturday Night Live productions feature films of It's Pat mm-hmm. and A Night at the Roxbury. So there was a streak of these SNL flop movies that came out. And yep. the irony is I avoided this film when it came out because it just seemed like another piece of, you know, SNL product, like a 90-minute comedy sketch that didn't need to be a movie. Were you a, Did you like Stuart Smalley from the show? I was indifferent towards the character. Okay. It seemed like, you know, gotcha. Saturday Night Live at the time was doing a lot of talk shows as a means of introducing characters. There, there mm-hmm. weren't a lot of fourth-wall sketches anymore. It was I, was I was a big comedy fan, sketch comedy fan. And I felt like it was becoming a crutch that the show had so many characters that were hosting talk shows to just talk directly to the camera. Mm. Daily Affirmation with Stuart Smalley. Stuart Smalley is a caring nurturer, a member of several 12-step programs, but not a licensed therapist. I'm going to do a great show today, and I'm going to help people because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. The the other thing that you see in a lot of, uh, you know, the guest host comes on and it's like, oh, Wayne Gretzky, he's church lady's brother. You know, that kind of thing where yeah. someone just comes out <laughs> yeah. and they do a carbon copy imitation. Yet the film takes this radically different approach that Stuart Smalley is the product of an alcoholic household <laughs> so that the characters yes. are not sketch comedy characters whatsoever. And when no. I when I saw it on cable when I was in college, I was amazed and taken in by, oh, this is so not what I thought it was going to be. I feel like there's some chatting to do about sort of the time in which this movie arrived, where, like you said, it's between It's Pat and Night at the Roxbury. These movies are weird. Like, yeah. It's Pat is a surreal strange experience it co-stars dave foley as the love interest of pat chris and this movie that movie 
feels like a Kids in the Hall production. That movie feels like a From the Minds of Kids in the Hall more than it does like Saturday Night Live the way we think of it now. And Night at the Roxbury is... Like the the what they would anchor an entire movie to as protagonist characters in the 90s, in the weird 90s, is so incredible because you can it is a landscape in which Pat, the brothers, the the brothers. Oh, my God, I forget their last name, but they're going to the Roxbury, Chris Kattan and Will Ferrell and Stuart Smalley. It's I it feels like it could only be born of this strange early to mid 90s time when we were just. Anything fucking goes. The spirit Anything. of independent cinema was alive and well. <laughs> I will say three of my, and I'm sure Lord Michaels has a lot of like films he would consider flops, but I think some of the most interesting Lauren Michael movies are ones that, that I've championed are uh, Kids in the Hall Brain Candy flopped when mm-hmm. it came out. I loved it. I saw it several times in the theater. It was so important to me, like a movie about depression yeah, that was a comedy. Brain Candy is amazing. And then uh, barely got released, but I, when I moved to New York in, in the late 90s, I got a bootleg copy of Tom Schiller's film, Nothing Lasts Forever, starring Zach Galligan. Mm. Never got an official release, and apparently Lauren Michaels was pissed at Tom Schiller because he, he put all this money into the movie and it never got a release. But it would play at film festivals every so often, and it has good buzz. They'd show it at BAM Cinematheque. You know, it would, it would get screened in. It's a great little movie that... They showed on Turner Classic Movies, and it was scheduled to to show again, and then they couldn't, like, it got pulled. Um, Mm -hmm. So the Lauren Michaels flops, and I'm going to include Stuart Saves His Family in there, I think are three distinctly weird, great comedy movies that Lauren Michaels is probably ashamed of, but I think they're fantastic. And I, like, I, watching Stuart, like... I was so impressed by, like, the, I, to me, the thing that ages the worst in this movie is its rampant fat phobia. Like, yeah. <laughs> the 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 fat shaming in Stuart Saves His Family is, uh, it, like, horrifying. Everything else around it, I was shocked at, like, wait, is this, like, if we touch those things out, this movie is phenomenally sensitive and everybody, the way that people make fun of Stuart, because Stuart Smalley, he lives in Chicago. He has a public access show, Daily Affirmations with Stuart Smalley. And he has done a lot of work on himself to recover from growing up in a very abusive family. And like he finds himself in a position in this movie where he is at the precipice of confronting his family's like generational alcoholism. And he's being thrown back into the fray of their chaos and having to decide do I save my family? Do what I do what I can to save my family, or do I save Stuart? Do I take care of Stuart? Right. And the way he ga- keeps getting like taken down, or at least called out for, like they're into that new age stuff, like you were. Oh, that new age bullshit! Every time someone says new age, I was like, you mean therapy? Like, there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing like esoteric about the things he was saying. I was like, this is what my friends in therapy and me talk about right now. None of this, like, this is new agey, crazy bullshit. This yeah. is straight up just therapy and someone it's, taking care of themselves. I, I feel like it's been completely mainstream where brands use the language of like self care and boundaries. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. all of it. I, I owe you an amends. I yes. owe you an amends. Nam- Namaste, Jordan. Yeah, it, 
It was just, it was so, like, I was so impressed at how even, because, like, I was waiting for a certain point in the movie for it to start laying the language on so thick that, like, clearly that, like, Stewart is a member of several 12-step programs, mm-hmm. like, Overeaters Anonymous, like, Debtors Anonymous, like, he he's out there in the self-help programs, he, you oh, know, yeah. he has a library of books in his home about that stuff, but I was waiting for a point where it would tip over to where the language around therapy would start to sound like self-parody, and I think in 19, the 1990s it did, but now I was like, none of this actually sounds like self-parody. None of this sounds overwrought. This just sounds like someone who's committed to working the program. Yeah, seriously. And I wonder if that's part of the reason that the, the film can gain traction a few years after it came out, that it's like, oh, this is no longer a point of ridicule. And I don't think the film is ridiculing it. And I think I think that's the thing about a comedy drama, that it kind of has a foot in each world that... It's hard to market it. It's hard for people to understand it. It's hard for people to draw the lines. We can talk about what we uh-huh. found funny about it, and I think that'll be a, a great part mm-hmm. of the conversation. But th- that to me, what I love is that when Stuart is in a recovery room, he can use certain mm-hmm. slogans and phrases and ideas and practices. But to me, the funniest stuff in the movie is just when the rubber hits the road and Stuart is... Uh, being confronted by his brother's friends at a bar who are like, oh, you think you're better than us? And they, they're they going to beat him yeah. up. And he's like, did your dad beat you? Could you just say to your inner child, I'm here for you, yeah. child. <laughs> like, I'll protect you. Yeah, like, like I'm, you're, I'm never going to let you get hurt again. Yes. The idea of putting it into practice in the world outside of those rooms is to me where, where mm-hmm. the best comedy is or when the, the police show up at a at a funeral service and Stuart tries explaining to a police officer you see officer this is really about (laughs) the family disease of alcoholism (laughs) yeah it's like there are people screaming at each other somebody is like barring somebody from burying their great aunt in a graveyard he's like officer what you have to understand is that this is about the disease of alcoholism (laughs) oh my and it's like I mean yeah it is Stuart's right she could have used to help my family after my father fell off the roof. I made a ham for your father. Oh, that was it. not a quality ham. Well, unless you can produce some sort of document, I don't know what else. We're I... really not very good at organizing, you know, papers, uh, insurance forms, warranties, that sort of thing. I told Dad to get a, a drawer. Uh huh. You see, officer, this is really about alcoholism, which is really a family disease. And so when then, when was your first contact with Stuart and did it hit on first watch the way you process it now or was that a journey? It's totally a journey, which the film has been a a major catalyst in my journey, which is that I... Okay, so I grew up in a working class family in New Jersey, Irish Catholic, Mm -hmm. alcoholic, Mm -hmm. but like none of that was talked about or addressed. It was just Mm -hmm. like, this is how people live. This is normal family behaviors. And then I went to a hoity-toity school in Poughkeepsie, Vassar College, where I was on scholarship and felt felt kind of outclassed and and suddenly very conscious of, of my class stuff. So I was so focused on blue collar politics and socialism and social yeah. justice regarding class issues that I I just did not pay attention to any of like the the elephant in the room, you know, the alcoholism. Yeah. And then I see this movie when I'm I'm home for maybe a Christmas break. And uh it was it was just showing on cable and I was like, oh my God, this is 
<laughs> this is so not what I expected. And that the guy playing no. Stuart's dad brings no comedic elements to it. And it's directed by Harold Ramis. And I just, as a footnote, I want to point out that when uh, Harold Ramis wrote National Lampoon, co-wrote National Lampoon's Animal House, and when John Landis was casting it, he he had these dramatic actors who were going to play the villains, like John Vernon, and I forget who plays the mayor. And the studio was like, oh, this is a comedy. You need Dom DeLuise as the town yeah. mayor. And the studio didn't understand casting dramatic actors in comedic roles to helping like bolster the comedy and help and improve the comedy. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I think that's one of the things that the film does so well that like, even though you have Al Franken in a wig as a sketch comedy character in a, in a <laughs> 97 minute feature film, he's surrounded by people doing dramatic performances. Vincent D'Onofrio in, in a sort of dramatic, sort of comedic role, the, the fake yeah. mustache and wig kind of takes you out of it a little, but D'Onofrio's great in it. And yeah. I was I was struck by uh, seeing this character exist in a dramatic world and still being funny. Um, and it led me, I found out it, it was, um, the film was based on a book. Just like, yes. uh, just like Santa Doesn't Need Your Help is a book and a movie. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. So I went out and as a Christmas present for myself, I got a... Uh, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. And I just and devoured it. doggone it, people it, like me. Devoured it. And it was mm -hmm. my introduction because the book does, even though even though it is comedic, I wouldn't say it's a parody of uh, self-help mm. or, or daily affirmations, but it 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 puts it all in there and you, you end up getting exposed to all these ideas and concepts that I had never encountered before. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is this is me. This is so much of my childhood home and my, my family dynamics. Yeah. And it took a comedy movie to bring it to my awareness. And I think in, in its defense, it's amazing that a movie uh, managed to get it out there and, and introduce it to people. I always, I always think about like, uh, I don't know if you saw V for Vendetta is not a very good movie. Oh yeah. But, but a thrill. A thrill and if a, a thrill, a thirteen-year-old kid sees this movie who's never thought about Marxism before, and this is their entry point. <laughs> like, hey, there's no wrong way to get started on thinking about class conflict. <laughs> and it's the same thing. It's like, hey, Stewart saves his family, got me thinking about alcoholism, and eventually got me to go to Al-Anon meetings and twelve-step, and that changed mm -hmm. my life. So, mm -hmm. because of that path, because of that journey, I can safely say that Stewart. Saves His Family changed my life because it changed the trajectory of how I understood myself, my family history, my own experience, strength, mm -hmm. and hope. And and what's amazing is I can go back and watch the movie now and I'm like, oh, now I'm the guy who speaks in slogans and tries to explain, right, yeah, yeah. Tries to, explain to a cop, this is about alcoholism. And um, Marissa points out the book is still in print if anyone is looking oh. for a good Christmas present for yourself or somebody else or, or any gift or any time of year that you might be hearing it, you can, you can check out the book. And I realized that if I'm going to be any good to anybody else, that I have to work on Stuart because that's the only person I can really fix, me. Because what they say is really true. It is easier to put on slippers than to carpet the entire world. I was extremely impressed at this movie's ability to translate. And like, I, while I was watching it, parts of it were hitting me because I was like, oh, I remember that from the trailer. I remember that from the yeah. trailer. And thinking about how, oh, 
the trailer sells this as as the sketch that sells mm-hmm. this as like, hey, you guys remember Al Franken as Stuart Smalley with like the mom saying to him in the kitchen, like, what was your name again? In reference to like in the cut, it's totally isolated from the actual meaning of her question. Right. And like him screaming, his sister screaming on the phone to him about dad's gone off the rails and he shot Donnie like their brother and Stuart saying like, you know, I would never normally say this, but can you get to a pound cake? Like right. I remembered so clearly the trailer of it and being like, you're the lead of this is so fucking buried by that trailer that when you walk into it, I was so taken aback by how realistically not maudlin life is when you grow up around addiction. Like it presents it as like, it's not like every day is like a state of decay. It's not like the house isn't gray. It's -hmm. not always raining outside to signal how miserable their life of addiction is. Yeah, and that Stuart has, he has flashbacks to positive memories of his father, Mm -hmm. that his father is not painted as this 100% villain and terrible dad, but that like, yeah, there were good days, there were terrible days, Mm -hmm. but there were also good days, and I think that's the the inconsistency of growing up in an alcoholic household of like, which dad am I going to get today? (laughs) You you Mm -hmm. don't know. And it's holding out the hope of like, maybe today's going to be a good one. Dad was not what you'd call a great role model. But as I thought back on our childhood, I remembered he wasn't always so bad. And it, I feel like this movie is funny in the way that you learn to be humorous and make light of to survive these exact kinds of circumstances. Like totally. the, the situational comedy of Stuart around his family and the melee that that always is. It feels like the way in which he kind of has to glance things off and kind of back slowly out of a room or be sardonic with humor when he's not being unyieldingly, like uh, unceasingly sincere and genuine is very much like, yes, these are the children of addicts that I know. I, as a child of an addict, like this is the way that I understand to relay the experience of my existence while being true to it, but also not taking on a tone of victimization because that is not where I am at in my process of coming from a family where addiction is very present. And it manages to balance the tones throughout of the levity that is inherent in Stuart and the tragedy that is his entire circumstances, but with the joy of him building in this, this movie actually references found family. Like he mentions explicitly like his born family, implying that he has a chosen family Mm -hmm. that he has made in this world to protect him. And I was really impressed at the kind of vernacular that it brings in in that way. It was like, this honestly, like, this fucking movie feels like me talking to my friends about this stuff. Totally. Jordan, this is such a relief because like an hour leading up to this, I'm like, what if all Jordan has to say is, this movie isn't funny at all. But of course oh, you get yeah. it. I've been listening to the podcast. <laughs> of course you get it and understand. And you, you, I know you understand how to like pull layers and meanings out of films that you, even if you don't like, you can get why somebody likes it. And I just want to... In regard to the the thesis statement of of feeling seen, um, mm-hmm. I had I had encountered and read stories. Uh, I didn't drink growing up because my my parents uh, made it look so unattractive to me that I didn't drink. That was I my my dad's stories of of drinking and being obliterated. That like it's why I never it's why I didn't drink when I was little. I never started drinking. It like yeah. scared me off of it. And then I just lived so long without doing it. it was like why would I ever start? So like yeah, that's a hundred percent why I I never drank. 
Well, I, I had friends who were, I listened to punk music and I had friends who were straight edge and I was like, oh yeah, I don't totally. drink and do drugs. I'm straight edge. And they're like, you're not straight edge. That's like saying, <laughs> that's like saying a little girl who doesn't do drugs is straight edge. So I was, yeah. I was not, Fair. I was not embraced by the straight edge community, despite my appreciation of the music. And, um, <laughs> and then you would. As far as sobriety goes, I feel like in life and in in recovery memoirs, uh, Pete Hamill has a book called A Drinking Life that I think is is a very specific type of boilerplate where it's like 240 pages of debauchery and drinking and sex and mm-hmm. adventures and getting in fights. And it's seemingly the, the book is like, this is how I got sober. It is just a romanticized yeah. view of my drinking years. And then the final chapter right. as an afterthought. And then one day I decided to stop. I didn't need this anymore. <laughs> and in Pete Hamill's book in particular. After this book-length advertisement this for book drinking. <laughs> celebration of everything that I did during those years. And then Pete Hamill goes out of his way to say, and I didn't need a program to stop. I did it on my own like a man. And I think, you know, mm. we'll, we'll eventually get to it. But that, that totally ties to the toxic masculinity stuff that's going on in this book, Santa Doesn't Need Your Help, of the idea that, like, men do not, they don't ask for help, they don't accept help, and they don't need yeah. help if they're going to straighten themselves out. So I, from a from a feeling scene point of view, had never encountered the story of the, the people I knew who, who were sober or people who, like, tell stories, I was putting beer on my cornflakes in the morning, and then it just got to be too much. Yeah. I was like, yeah, but I never <laughs> drank. And Stuart says at the bar, well, I've never, I've never drank because I'm, I have, the alcoholic gene and I'm afraid it would make me an alcoholic. I'm like, that's me. I've never seen that anywhere. I've never seen that anywhere Mm -hmm. in, in film or television. And they don't, to the best of my knowledge, that doesn't come up in any of the Stewart's Smalley sketches. So this was the first time I heard somebody speak to my experience. And the irony is by, by having that movie introduce me to the idea of 12 step meetings, going into these rooms where I hear all of these people where I feel seen and I'm like, oh, we all have these shared experiences. You guys get it. Yeah. We get each other. And then the other thing, thinking about watching the movie this time, um, Stuart says to his dad, I've, I've made all this personal change and I feel like you don't even notice that he, he does not mm-hmm. feel seen or his, his mother sees him as a particular kind of failure and then his mm-hmm. brother, uh, played by Vincent D'Onofrio, Donnie, his older brother, I guess photocopied pages from Stewart's uh, diary and reads them yeah. to the family. Xerox copies of Stewart's journal. I've taken the liberty of underlining some of the more fascinating entries. I am disgusted with each and every member of my family. I forgot how much I hate my mother. Big, stinking. Drunk. Well, nice being home. So this time around, I was very much aware of the notion of like how people see themselves and how they see each other and the horror of that's how you see me. That's what you think mm-hmm. of me and how painful it is. But for me, the movie, the movie has been profound as far as seeing a version of myself, even though it's like a, a comedic caricature, uh, it, it still felt just so powerful. And I'd never seen anything like that in the movie before. It's time for a short break. Then I'll have one quick thing before I go about the newly released on streaming movie, The Banshees of Inishirin. Ha <laughs> ha! 
Hi everyone, I'm Ella McLeod. And I'm Alexis B. Preston. And we host a show called Comfort Creatures, the show for every animal lover, be it a creature of scales, six legs, fur, feathers or fiction. Comfort Creatures is a show for people who prefer their friends to have paws instead of hands. Unless they are raccoon hands, that is okay. That is absolutely okay, yeah. Yes. Every Thursday, we will be talking to guests about their pets, learning about pets in history, art, and even fiction. Plus, we'll discover differences between pet ownership across the pond. It's going to be a hoot on Maximum Fun. Hi, everybody. My name is Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. Dr. Sydney McElroy. That, that is true. It's important in this context because we host a medical history podcast called Sawbones. Oh, I thought we were going to. We should have worked on that. Sawbones. Sawbones isn't afraid to ask the hard-hitting questions. Like, are vaccines as safe and reliable as they want us to believe? Yes. Do I have to get a flu shot? Yes. Uh, okay. Is science a miracle? No. We have a lot of great history for you and a lot of laughs. And sometimes the history is so bad that there's no laughs. But you'll learn something. You'll feel something. And it's always Sawbones. That's right. Every week on MaximumFun.org. Welcome back to Feeling Scene. I'm here with producer, writer, and pop culture aficionado Kevin Marr, talking about 1995's Stuart Saves His Family. Kevin saw himself, to some degree, in the title character. And surprisingly enough, I ended up seeing myself in Stuart too! We are going to pick it up right there. Well, and I like, you know, watching it, watching it now at 37, I was just like, I don't see many, like, queer hyper-focused on, like, processing and internally working through, like, the constant process of self-betterment, children of addicts who are, like, living in a life of, like, their friendship love stories. They're the most important sustaining parts of their lives. I was like, holy shit, there's a lot of Stuart Smalley in me. Yeah. I was like, oh my god. This is like, this is in fact one of the most respectful portrayals of like a queer, kind of perceivably asexual person who builds their life around their friendships and is extremely invested in the constant interiority work of just like wanting to be my optimal self all the time. I was like, there's a there's a lot of wonder. It's not. I'm not going on a long walk to reach these points of identification. It is a short no. walk between me and Stuart. And I feel like a few years earlier, if the movie had come it came out in '95, if it came out, you know, five to ten years earlier, then um, his sponsor in Al-Anon, played by Lauren Sandy Macomo, they would have made her become a love interest. Which the movie that's so yeah. not what the movie is about at all. No. And then, and then if it had been made just a few years later, I feel like. They would have really not just coded Stuart as a queer character. They would have made him out outwardly queer, which then today would feel so cringy that like, ooh, Al Franken and playing gay characters a lead, like that would feel off today. But it existed in this very specific moment in time where they could have uh-huh. the platonic, like you said, the supportive friendship where he gets to be a father figure to her and she gets to be a mother figure to, to him and they can support yeah. each other in a really special way is incredible. It is, and it's, I, they're, they have these, exchange, like, she's one of his sponsors, but yes. they're, they're very much peers, and the moment where she's explaining, 
like her history with her estranged, like her biological father, she never met. She was sort of conceived in an affair and it caused her own adoptive father, basically her mother's husband to reject her and beat her. And it meant she was essentially fatherless until she meets that man later in life, tracks him down. They meet, they have an amazing dinner. And then at the end of the dinner, he knows this is his child. He, he hits on her. We had a lovely dinner. He was very nice, very charming. And as we were leaving, in the parking lot, he made a pass. Jeez. And the way she tells that story, and the way that it so clearly is agonizing for her, and the way Laura San Giacomo emotes through it, while also delivering it as just so matter-of-factly and not shamefully as a part of her story, I was like... This is this is a conversation on a sensitive Friday night with yeah. me and any number of my fucking friends talking about our lives. Like in the exact tone and tenor of how they nail that conversation, I was so moved at the authenticity of that exchange and how much respect the movie clearly has for those moments in it. So here's what I don't understand, Jordan. I, I would love to to get your thoughts on this. The people who went in thinking they were getting a Wayne's World style comedy. What was their experience getting that scene, getting that monologue? And then the flip side is the people who would appreciate the the comedic drama, the subtle performance and everything like, oh, I'd never go see a Saturday Night Live movie. Oh, this is just going to be another. It's Pat. I have no interest. Like it completely. It's a it's a Venn diagram with no overlap. It's just two circles. (laughs) that don't come None. together. So, so many people haven't seen this movie and I feel like when I bring it up to people, I have to be like, no, no, no. I know what you're going to, I know what you're thinking. This is actually a great movie. No one who came into this movie with a preconceived notion was satisfied. No. Absolutely fucking no one. <laughs> like, there's, like, from either side of the spectrum, if you can't, like, there was no one who, like, I can't, I can see how it, like, didn't work because how do you, this movie is so built from the DNA that we understand now of like anti-comedy comedy that FX really refined oh, into absolutely. like a whole programming slate. Like this steward <laughs> saves his family. This could like, if you made this into a series, it would be an FX television show now. And there's an audience for that who knows what they're getting into. Yes. But I can't imagine who and where the, the audience was for this movie that could have understood going in how to buy in to what they were getting. It's like, it's for everyone and yet i have no idea who it's for the well the tagline i think was was i mean a good tagline it didn't it didn't rescue the movie or, or get people to go see it sure. but it says you'll laugh because it's not your family you'll cry because <laughs> it is and i just love that it speaks to the the comedy drama of it but also that that yeah you laugh at it until you realize like no this actually is the family i grew up in right i had a roommate who when i told him i was a fan of the movie he's like oh so and so they're they're in 12 step and all of them love this movie so that's that's very (laughs) niche that's like in in the days of like you know tape trading of circulating the tape but yeah i cannot imagine going to the going to the theater opening night when this came out what that must have been like I guess you gotta accept that you just never had a father. So from now on, when you need one, I'll be your dad, okay? You know, when you're not being my mom. I love that this movie is not interested 
in a fairy tale ending for its core story. It is a happy ending of a movie, but for the the main story of it, Stuart's the title is Stuart saves his family. Right. And Stuart goes through the process of realizing ultimately that Stuart can't save his family and that it's not his job to save his family. And they have an intervention for his father that erodes and mom kind of loses her nerve. And how could you expect her to do anything else? She lives yeah. with she's the one who lives with this guy shoulder to shoulder. He's gonna terrorize her. And it fails. The intervention mm-hmm. fails. And we don't go back to Minnesota to see a postscript on his family. We know that they have essentially stopped, the parents have stopped talking to Stuart. And right. his sister is like, you know, trying to get by as a single mother. And Donnie has finally realized after being shot by his dad on accident on a hunting trip that like, I've got to get out of here to save my own life. And he gets clean. But like, we end on that note of chosen family and that feeling of victory in that way. But like, it comes right on the heels of the biggest possible disappointment that this movie feels like it, deli- it could deliver you because right. it 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 taunts you with the title and does mm-hmm. not deliver upon it. But in real life, that's probably what would have happened. Absolutely, and that uh, you're absolutely right that the the title it the title is not Stuart tries to save his family. Stuart wants to save yeah. his family. The title is Stuart saves his family, which absolutely does not happen, which I nope. I don't know if that's a genius move on its part. And then the other thing I love about it is that it ends at the holidays where Stuart says, I, I can't come back at Christmas. And it's going to be mm-hmm. the first time in my life I don't see my family at Christmas and how hard that is for him. Mm-hmm. But to your point, it's about forging ahead and making the best of a situation and finding your your chosen family and your people that you can have a different kind of family holiday experience with, which I found so beautiful and moving. I don't think I'm coming back for Christmas. I have to get on with my life. It's going to be weird not being home. It's the uh, fighting, mainly. Yeah. Well, and I love that when you, because, like, the way it sort of sets up how Stuart is in, including, he's also in um, Adult Children of Alcoholics. He's in he's in uh, that group as well. We have several scenes where it is Stuart with, like, six sponsors. And this move, like, as much as this movie tees up that the protagonist of it even would be the butt of your jokes, right. the movie actually has such a wonderful respect and kind-heartedness for them throughout the entire thing that you're kind of always on guard for it to drop the ball on. Yeah. But it never really does, which is shocking. The, the thing watching it this time that I, I found I found satisfying, but it doesn't go out of its way to, like, hit the viewer over the head with this, is Stuart is at a funeral, and his sister takes him by the hand, and, and in his narration, mm-hmm. he says, my sister took my hand, and I felt like she was saying to me, Stuart, we need you to save our family. <laughs> Then Jody took my hand and I felt this chill run up my spine as if she was saying it was up to me to save my entire family. It made me want to jump into the grave with Aunt Paula and let her tickle my back forever. No one asks Stuart to do any of this. That is his imagined request that no one asked for. And I found that like... Watching it, I'm like, oh, I've done that. Oh, I've been like, it's up to yeah. me to intervene and get involved. And it's like, nobody asked for that. Absolutely no one asked yep. for that. But the film does not point a finger and say it's it's all his fault. 
Uh, but mm. but it's there. It's there. And I found that. No, one satisfying. of my one of my great journeys as a human being is that <clears throat> I like to be a I like I like to be a friend of purpose. I, mm-hmm. I like don't have to be doing something to prove my use, but I, I take a lot of pride in the feeling of usefulness. And so like in my my friendships in my life, which are like the center of my life, I I have a tendency of a reflex to overexert that usefulness to demonstrate it to like prove how useful I am because I like to be needed. That's a really good feeling. And I've, you know, coached myself through like the needing to be needed versus like appreciating the feeling of it. And then like, do you give out of altruism or do you give out of a sense of needing to provoke people to tell you the special baby? And one of my great sort of self projects is understanding that like my generosity can't come with a price tag on it. I cannot give to others so that they will then give back to me because then they can readily say, I never asked you for that. It's like, you know what? You're right. You never asked me for any of that. So I can't actually, like, I have to find the line of, like, holding you responsible for reciprocity of something you in no way even elicited me giving to you in the first place. So, like, watching Stuart do that, it's like, I feel you, buddy. Like, oh, well, you're giving me a positive reinforcement? That means it's time for me to take on a whole bunch of extra responsibilities that nobody (laughs) asked of me for my own personal sense of satisfaction in this endeavor. It's like, great, still didn't ask you those. So am I supposed to thank you for something I didn't want? Relatable. Relatable content. Very relatable. I did not expect so many. I remember liking this movie. I remember being like, oh, yeah, I have fun with Stuart Saves His Family. I did not expect to be read for filth by Stuart Saves His Family. It's amazing once you've lived a little <laughs> how it changes. The movie, the movies don't change. We change. Our awareness, yeah. our awareness of ourselves change. And then we can see the stuff of like, oh yeah, that's me. Whoops. Are there things that you have found like that have kind of managed to capture that lightning in the bottle that Stuart saves his family inexplicably manages to do? Or does this kind of still sit as a high mar- watermark for what it accomplishes in terms of the kind of character that Stuart embodies? Yeah, I guess for me, it, it's just going to be that it was the first time I encountered yeah. something like that that made it so uh, invigorating and exciting and welcoming. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but just the fact that like it was this 1995 movie that I would have seen uh, my senior year of college and... Uh, by that point, it was it was on cable and it was just being circulated. And I watched it with my dad. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like and the elephant having in the no room. idea what you were getting into, yeah. right? The, the elephant in the room is in the room with me, and then I had to leave oh before. Oh my god! So then I said, "I'm sorry, I, I had to leave. I didn't see the whole movie." And then my dad recapped the the third act of the film for me. And he said, yeah, and then the father tells him, you're addicted to 12-step meetings. And it was like, the way my dad told the story, it was like, oh, you relate. You're putting way too much focus on Stuart's (laughs) father here. Which, again, the idea of, he says, imagine having Liberace for a son. You know, my dad just was not, my dad didn't get who I was or appreciate who I was and thought I was, uh, this is his language, trigger warning. He's like, you're a thin-skinned sissy, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Where um, that that was just something, you know, people of a certain generation grew up with. And again, again, I'm looking at like Irish, Irish American working class Catholic kind of family dynamics that you hear that sort of stuff. So it was it was such a relief to see Stuart as a character who grew up in a very particular kind of family, but became who Mm -hmm. he became because of it, in spite of it. 
can I tell you before we wrap up, can I tell you my Al Franken story? Yeah, yeah. So, like I said, I I saw this movie and that led me to go to my first 12-step meeting because it kind of gave me some idea of what to expect and the language and the ideas from the book. So, decades later, I'm I've I've been in the program for a long time, it's changed my life. I'm mm-hmm. at the Democratic National Convention and I'm there for Comedy Central's Indecision, where we're doing branded content for a big brand. And it's not one of those fun ones where it's like, hey, it's going to be some really fun comedy powered by AT&T, where, you know, brought to you by Tostitos. It's no, it is hands on. Every frame is an ad. And they're doing scripted man on the street stuff. It was it was just a mess for a soft drink. And they want people to hold up T-shirts. And it's it's not Mm -hmm. very good. Okay. Al Franken is there because he's a senator and it's the DNC. And they said, oh, somebody said, the client said, we should try to get Al Franken because he has a connection to Comedy Central and a history with indecision. Uh We should see if he'll come do this. And I'm I'm directing and I'm like, there's no way Al Franken is going to do this. So I said, let me go over. I'm going to go talk to him. I'm going to see if we can get him to do it. So I walk over and everyone's waiting way far behind. And I go over. I'm like, Mr. Franken, I... I wanted to thank you for Stuart Saves His Family because that's what got me into program and it's it's changed my life. Mm-hmm. And he shook my hand and he was very appreciative and we had a really nice moment and I got to thank him for Stuart Saves His Family. And then I walked back to the client. I said, he said, no, he won't do yeah, it. Yeah, oh, he's, he's <laughs> Sorry, just, I, nothing I could do, nothing I could say. Like the negotiation was over. Like you did the right thing. You did the right thing. It, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have, Worked out well. Although I was thinking today, what if he'd done it and said yes, and then we became best friends? But that, <laughs> that seems unlikely. I'm glad I could express my gratitude for a movie that he probably doesn't get a lot of good feedback about. No, listen, I when when Jennifer's Body's 10th, I've talked about that movie so many times, everywhere and on the spot including, but like when that 10th anniversary came around, I pitched a 10-year retrospective to Beyond Fest that year here in Los Angeles. And I did it because I wanted to talk to Karin Kusama. I wanted to yeah. talk to Karin and I wanted to talk to whoever I could get from that, Megan, hopefully, because like it was a completely self-serving endeavor to A, celebrate the film, yes, but B, to put me in front of these people so I could express to them in great detail publicly how grateful I was for what they gave us slash me specifically. So 100%, like we have to leverage these ins that we have to do, to like fulfill ourselves in these. I had 10 years worth of of appreciation to express to these people and to revive their film in front of a crowd. And I fucking took advantage of it. And One I of the best days of my life. That is awesome. I love that. I hope everybody listening gets an opportunity to do that, whether it's on a small scale or a big scale. But exactly. also, don't pass up an opportunity to talk to a creator who, who has this deep cut obscure thing. Even, even if what you're saying is, I get it. And you're making it about me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I get what you meant. I understand. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it's important. No, I, I completely agree. So then... Where are you in your sort of process of daily affirmations? Like, have you gotten a hold on the good enough, smart enough, and gosh darn it people like me? Or oh, yeah, I, I do you morning feel pages. like it I write is still a work in day. progress? I, it's always going to be a work in progress. It's never not going to be a work mm-hmm. in progress. 
And mm-hmm. it is about doing morning pages every day and doing a, a gratitude list every day that I power my day with gratitude. Uh, I, I have that. I go to my meetings. I started a meeting. I, I, uh, I had a meeting that didn't work for me. It wasn't that convenient. And my son was taking some classes where they had classrooms at the parish offices of a church. So I, I went to them and said, could I, could I start a 12-step meeting here? And then the word grew. The pandemic totally complicated it. And then we ended up having to do it on Zoom for a long time. Now it's a hybrid meeting and like nobody likes hybrid, but you got to keep doing it. You no. just got to keep going. And um yeah, I'm I'm working my program and now I'm I'm rereading the book, which uh the Stuart Smalley <laughs> book I want to do in preparation. I got I got about a third of the way through before the podcast. Um <laughs> So yeah, I'm still I'm still working the work in progress and uh getting a lot out of it. And also, like I said, that this movie is important to me because it was the first time I heard people talking about some of the stuff having to do with alcoholism and just like mm-hmm. yeah, things that that Growing up in a household where there were things that were just, there was no talking and there were things you never touched and never went near. I would like to think the upside of certain parts of the internet and social media is that you can find your people and you can eventually hear the Mm -hmm. whispers and uh, encounter people who are talking about the stuff that you might not, you know encounter in your regular day to day. And also, like we said Mm -hmm. in the the beginning, that this, this stuff from 1995 would have been obscure that today... Super mainstream. Like, Stuart is one TikTok away from finding Gen Z. Like, because that's apparently how these things work now. I guess my my final question to you would be then, what what does Kevin Saves His Family mean to you? What would it mean to you today? Uh, Well... I'll just bring it back to, because I have to do this, I have to bring it back to Santa Doesn't Need Your Help you do. is the, the book that I wrote. And the uh, the thing that we encounter is we're, we're all familiar with the media of like Ernest Saves Christmas and different people saving Christmas. Yes. So in the book, what happens this year is a K-pop band comes to save Christmas. <laughs> and there's a flashback to all the different peoples over the years who have tried to, oh. or who have successfully come to the North Pole and saved <laughs> Christmas <laughs> and Santa resents it because it's all one timeline, one one continuity. And uh, Santa, I'm <laughs> it's not all the, the same Santa. It's it's all the same Santa. And I'm not in any way suggesting that Santa is an alcoholic, but he behaves <laughs> like an alcoholic who refuses help. And when I think about okay. when I think about the holidays and having to save the holiday and saving Christmas and saving your family, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. And that in yeah. this book. It's that Santa refuses help and then realizes it's okay. It's okay to get help. And that Mm -hmm. uh, I think self-acceptance is the the message of the book. So, uh, yeah, trying to hit the brakes where I don't don't tell myself, they want me to do this. They want me to save the day. Like, I, I think for Kevin Saves Christmas, when I watch the movie now or when I read the book, it's like, Stuart, nobody asked. You can stop right there. Nobody (laughs) asked. And when I say Stuart, nobody asked, I'm saying yeah. Kevin, Kevin, nobody asked. <laughs> I completely feel the same way. And Kevin, thank you so much for your time with this and for being so generous with your story and your life to talk to, to, talk to us about Stuart Saves His Family. My pleasure. <laughs> thank you, Jordan. Thank you again to Kevin Marr. And boy, wouldn't Santa doesn't need your help 
make a great last-minute gift for the pop culture-loving overachiever in your life? We put a link in the show notes so you can read more about it and pick up your own copy. And this is coming out very soon before Christmas. So if you are stumped on gift ideas, like honestly, why not run with it? You clearly don't have a better one. Otherwise, you wouldn't be in this position. Um, But now I have that one quick thing before I go about playwright, screenwriter, director Martin McDonough's uh, 2022 film, The Banshees of Inishirin, which is now streaming on HBO Max. There was that terrible, terribly sad, not terrible article, but terribly sad article recently. Um, I believe it was Hollywood Reporter that were about like, nobody's going to see movies for grownups anymore. That was like, no one went to see Tar. No one went to see Confess Voyage. No one went to see The Banshees of Inishirin. Um, And that's a super bummer. That's a super bummer. We know that is the struggle today in film at the theater. Um, But guess what? Now it's right at your fingertips. You can set HBO Max alight with your attention to the Banshees of Inishirin. This movie is the story of two best friends who have a falling out and the unbelievable escalating consequences that that has on both of their lives. This is a friendship that ends because Brendan Gleeson's Colm one day up and decides that he doesn't want to talk to what kind of appears to be his best friend, uh, Podrick, anymore. He just like, he Podrick goes to grab him at his house at 2 p.m. to go to the pub like they always do. Colm is not there. He gets up to the pub and Colm, Colm is inside and he's just not coming out. Like Podrick's yelling, yelling to him at the window. Colm's not, not coming out. From then on, Colm asserts, reasserts, emphasizes, admonishes Podrick throughout the movie that he simply doesn't want to talk to him anymore. I don't want to talk to you. I don't like you anymore. You're dull. You're dull. Yesterday, maybe I felt this way a little bit, but it didn't bother me enough to do anything about it. Today, I can't speak to you anymore because my life is whiling away on this little island. I feel like I haven't done anything of import. And I need to focus, fucking whatever that means, my time left on creating a legacy. Because honestly, frankly, asshole, you were, I guess, too lazy to do it before now. So now you have to forsake kindness um, and any sense of, like, honor to a, a friendship by just kind of kicking kicking your, your BFF to the curb. And Podrake is, he's a nice guy. He's a little bit pedantic. He's a little bit annoying. But Podrick, all he's got is this island and the friends he has on it and his sister, his lovely sister Siobhan, played by Carrie Condon. Uh, Podrick, of, of course, played by Colin Farrell in one of one of the great performances of his career. And I I was I started watching it and was like, oh, my God, turns out this movie is my worst nightmare. Um, my friends suddenly spontaneously deciding they don't like me anymore for for no reason whatsoever. And they leave me. This movie is about my worst nightmare. And I'm Colin Farrell. I, I'm i not dull. I know that. But like I, the idea of, I, I said it on Twitter, like if my my villain edit is Leighton Meester from The Roommate. I know this. Uh, proud of it. My sad, my sad edit, it's Colin Farrell in The Banshees of Inna Sharon. The version of me that exists that cannot 
let go of being turned away by this person that is so important to me that I just like I refuse to process it on my own. I refuse to look inward. I refuse to respect the even cruel boundary that this other person is putting up. I refuse to do any of that. And instead, I just keep basically banging my head against the wall of impossibility to try and get this person to change their mind. To not just be like, hey, I want to talk about it. Be like, I'm going to change your mind. I'm going to change your mind. And you're going to take me back and everything's going to be like it was and everything's going to be fine because nothing happened. So everything can be fine again. There is such a clear path from me as I exist now to that person, even if it's the unlikely path. I see how clear that path is. So watching it was very, it was, you know, it was a good feeling scene moment. And it, this is Irish, man. This is an Irish comedy, which means it's actually a drama. And it is, it is sad and it is melancholic. And it is so difficult to watch Padre keep throwing himself at this person who keeps rejecting him. And with only nothing but like puppy dog eyes for a while. But then things take a bit of a turn. Um... To just watch his insistence that he is owed more kindness than this. And I feel like anybody who's been in, you know, let's stick with friend breakups. Anybody who's been in a friend breakup, I think has been in that position where it's just like, I just am begging you for more kindness right now. I insist to you that I am worthy of more respect and kindness from you right now. And I cannot believe you cannot even give me that. For the years that we have behind us, the least you owe me is respect and kindness in this moment because that's what I am giving you. That's what I am giving you, again, until the point where things start taking winding turns in this movie and neither is respecting the other and things are getting a bit more extreme. I'm so fully team Potterick, team Colin in this movie. I look at, I look at like, Colm and I'm like, I mean, yeah, I get that you have this, like, complete hairpin turn in your life and your values and you suddenly need to be, like, an artistic hermit, but I'm also like, nah, fuck you, guy. <laughs> You're being a total dick. Team Potterick all the way. And it, I didn't, like, I've had such wonderful like replies to me on Twitter people being like oh my god this movie took me out for weeks like I'm still processing it I've never been more devastated this movie broke my heart and I get and I see all of that but honestly I found like when the movie was over like I felt nice I I felt like I felt like oh what a what a, I'd watch that again like it, it and I will be like I I had to process processing promising young woman for weeks. Like I walked out of that theater and I had to like walk around the. I didn't go back to work for two hours because I was like I can't go back to work right now. I need to just be alone with my thoughts. But this ended and there was something warm inside that it left with me. I I didn't leave me in a wake of devastation when a, completely the architecture of this specific movie suggested it would do exactly that. I was actually, it felt gentle to me. But hey, if you haven't seen it, could go either way. Like it, it could shell you completely and you'll have to just cope with that. Or maybe, maybe you'll find yourself on the other side of it and be like, hmm, okay. Like what a, what a story of two people and just kind of feel contented sitting with yourself. That was me on this one. I, I, I hope everybody watches it. It really, it's, I've I've heard it's one of the best movies of the year. It absolutely is one of the best movies of the year. Um, this is to me, this is like Martin McDonough operating at like the zenith of his capabilities. Um, and not for nothing, guys, Barry Keegan, one of the most talented goddamn weirdos in this entire industry, one of the most able, nimble people to deliver a destabilizing and completely ensorceling performance in ways that will surprise you from moment to moment, his his choices, um, his character of Dominic. There's a lot to take in there, but truly top to bottom, 
Carrie Condon, Barry Keegan, Colin Farrell, Brennan Gleeson, Martin McDonough. Job well done, everybody. HBO Max, check it out. Go support. It's I, I don't, we can call this independent cinema, but support small cinema. Support smaller cinema in the face of very, very big cinema. Um, go get yours, Avatar, but like support smaller cinema. Uh, and that is our show. That's it. We did it. You can follow us on Twitter at FeelingScenePod or send us an email at FeelingScene at MaximumFun.org. If you want to follow me, I'm Jor Crew on Twitter. Our theme music is by Andrew Epen. The show is produced by Marissa Flaxbart. Our senior producers are Kevin Ferguson and Laura Swisher. And this is a production of Maximum Fun. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.